Welcome to Historicity, where we turn back time to see how cities got to be the way they are. I'm Angus Lockyer. I've been teaching and writing history for over 20 years. But when I want to think about how the past became the present and where we might go next, I head outside, walk the streets and pick apart the layers. And I'm Jelena Sofronievich. I'm fascinated by the way that history and politics and culture intersect. How our imperial pasts have left their trace on our material present, not least in the streets. In this walk, Leisured City, we're exploring the west end of London, where squares and streets were built on aristocratic estates, and where the wealthy have flocked ever since. Not that the rich have had everything their own way. Some neighbourhoods proved less desirable than their owners might have wished. Others have seen retail, and worse, trespass on elite enclaves. But if the East End has always been where the real work of the city gets done, the West End is where those with the readies come to invest and to spend it. In recent years, much of the spending has come from overseas. As ever, a couple of notes before we get underway. We've designed these walks to follow on foot, but we know that you might not be on the streets. You can download maps and transcripts from the episode notes. If you're on the street, you'll find that we're quite fast walkers. But of course, you can listen to this at your own pace. Just change the speed on your podcast app to suit yourself. In this third and final episode, we'll be exploring the estates on either side of Oxford Street, in Mayfair and Marylebone. They started up at the same time. They quickly became distinct. But, like St. James's, they've always been places where the elite has come to invest, to live and to consume. Recently, that elite has been global. We'll start the story further back, though, in the courtyard of the Royal Academy, to see more clearly the aristocratic origins of it all. You'll find it roughly halfway between Piccadilly Circus and Green Park on the underground, on the north side of Piccadilly. We'll meet you there. So here we are in front of the Royal Academy in the courtyard of Burlington House, and we've got a brass band doing carols in the background. You can probably hear them. This is an old mansion. It was started in the 17th century, not by Burlington. He buys it from Sir John Denham. He finishes it in 1668. It's very grand even then. By the 1690s, he's paying the highest rates in London. And that original house is still, in fact, entombed inside the Royal Academy. But it's been remade and remade and remade over the years. First in the early 18th century in 1719, when young aristocrats have begun to go to Europe and get excited about Palladian architecture. He hires architects to rebuild the mansion. He starts developing the streets to its north, leading up to Hanover Square. It's remodeled in the early 19th century. And then in 1854, it's bought by the government for the public service. And what you see now moves in the Royal Academy for Art, also the Learned Societies for Chemistry, Geology, the Linnaean Society, the Astronomers, the Antiquaries. Also the original Royal Society, which we saw in the previous episode, that's now down on Carlton House Terrace, and the University of London had its original headquarters in the back of this mansion. In the early years, though, back in the 17th century, Burlington House is only one of three mansions on this stretch of road, and it's not the grandest. That would be Clarendon House. That's also built in 1664, named for the then Lord Chancellor. But that lasts less than 20 years. In 1683, he sells it to investors. They're led by Sir Thomas Bond. 
who knocks it down. He's worked out there's more money to be made from terraces than from grand houses. Here's John Evelyn in 1684. I could not but deplore the sweet place. By far the most noble gardens, courts and accommodations, stately porticos, anywhere about the town, should be so much straightened and turned into tenements. But that magnificent pile in gardens contiguous to it, built by the late Lord Chancellor Clarendon, being all demolished and designed for piazzas and buildings, was some excuse for my Lady Berkeley's resolution of letting out her ground also for so excessive a price as was offered advancing near £1,000 per annum in mere ground rents. To such a mad intemperance was the age coming of building about a city, by far too disproportionate already to the nation. I, having my time, seen it almost as large again as it was within my memory. Intemperance has been part of Mayfair's DNA from the start. To see its full extent, though, to see what Bond did, paving the way for most of the subsequent development, we have to leave the courtyard and start walking the streets. So we're heading out onto Piccadilly and we'll pause briefly there. So we're just outside Burlington House now. We can hear the band a little louder. The carols are going well. The reason they're there is because they're outside one of the earliest retailers on this street. By the early 18th century, Piccadilly, where we now are, is the obvious place to sell things, provide the things that the elite need to entertain in the appropriate style and to keep up appearances. So that's Fortnum & Mason. We can see it across the street. They start up in 1707. There was an earlier building from the 1830s. The building we're seeing today is actually 1920s, but in a kind of antiquing style, neo-early Georgian. Just down a few doors from then, we can see Hatchards, the bookshop. They're there from 1801. But we're turning right just a few more steps up Piccadilly to see a slightly later shopping experience. So we've come to the end of the Burlington House frontage and we're right in front of Burlington Arcade with a very grand manor. You've got your grocers, Fortnum's, you've got your bookshop, Hatchards, and now in 1818, even more shopping is necessary and so the Burlington Estate builds this. They're following Paris, London follows Paris a lot at that time, and this is, quote, for the sale of jewellery and fancy articles of fashionable demand for the gratification of the public. A particular kind of public, this is off the street. There is no need for the aristocrats to mix with common folk. A little later, in the middle of the 20th century, of course, Walter Benjamin talked about these kinds of arcades, glass windows, covered in, slightly private, a new contrivance of industrial luxury, using new technology, dressing iron in comfortable classical references. The killer line here, art in the service of the salesman. The arcade has its own police force, one of the oldest in London. It was sold in 2018 for £300 million. 
We're not going into the arcade, we're continuing up Piccadilly just a little more, then we're turning right on Old Bond Street. So as we're turning on Old Bond Street now, we're turning into Thomas Bond's development. We're heading into Mayfair proper, and of course we're seeing what happened to shopping in the last 200 years. The grocers, the bookstores, the arcade, and now luxury retailing really takes off. This is laid out again in the end of the 17th century. It's a byword for luxury in the 18th, and as we walk up it, we will see very familiar international brands making their typical statements. So we're walking up Old Bond Street, turn right at Burlington Gardens. You may just have heard a very loud engine, it was a very luxurious car. But it's the current form of parading. First you did it in the squares, then you did it on Regent Street, Nowadays, you get it by putting more carbon into the air. As we continue up Old Bond Street here, on our left, we've got another arcade, the Royal Arcade. Orange decoration, an incredibly elaborate front next to Alexander McQueen. We've just turned right on Burlington Gardens. This initially divided the mansion from the estate to the north. Now more luxury retail. Salvatore Ferragamo on our right. Ralph Lauren on our left, oddly. Even middle-range American quasi-luxury has to have a place here. We're walking between these two shops down Burlington Gardens. Take the next left, Cork Street. As we turn left on Cork Street, glancing right, we can see the back of the Royal Academy. Extraordinary mid-19th century grandiose institutional architecture. But on Cork Street now, we're looking at a quieter street, together with Savile Row, where the tailors hang out. It's part of what is now the Pollen Estate, even though it's majority owned by Norway, their sovereign wealth fund allows the burning of oil to buy things like this. And Cork Street has been a centre for contemporary art dealers from the 1920s. On the right side of the street, we still have two of the original ones, the Mare Gallery, the Redfern Gallery. The art dealers started leaving in the 1960s. Mayfair wasn't hip enough for them. In the 1980s, they're cropping up in Hoxton, even in Bethnal Green. We met one of them on our walk around the East End. But now they're back close by here because this is where the wealth comes to London to stay. We're continuing up Cork Street to the end where we'll turn left. At the end of Cork Street is Clifford Street. Straight across is number seven, which we can see. That's the headquarters of the Children's Investment Fund. Chris Hone, its boss, paid him 1.5 million a day this year in 2022. Among the hedge fund bosses, he's a good one, though. He has a reasonably modest lifestyle. He gives most of it away to charity. Mayfair is hedge fund central in London. Turn left on Clifford Street, then right on New Bond Street.
at the end of Clifford Street. Now we're turning right on New Bond Street. This is built up slightly later than Old Bond Street. To our left, we've got a jeweler ghetto, if you like. To our right, the bling is really getting out of control. We've got Louis Vuitton, we've got Chanel, we've got Dior competing to use as much gold as they can. Turn right on New Bond Street, then right again on Conduit Street. We've turned right on Conduit Street. We've got Balenciaga on the corner here. They're in hot water. They had a recent ad series which featured children holding handbags crafted from teddy bears dressed in bondage outfits. High fashion really has to work to get eyeballs and it doesn't always get it right. Leave them behind. Continue up Conduit Street, then turn left on St. George Street. We're on St. George Street now. We're heading up towards a square we can see in the distance. We've got Sotheby's on our left, the back of the auction house, the great rival of Christie's, who we saw in the previous episode of this walk. On our right, we've got a striking church. This is St. George Hanover Square, the name of the square we're heading to. This tells us we're in another estate. It's where Mayfair begins to get going in terms of the model we've already seen in Bloomsbury and elsewhere. Continue up St. George Street and go into the square. So here we are in Hanover Square. It's where Mayfair really gets going in terms of the template for aristocratic capitalism that we've already met in earlier episodes. It's hard to see given what's here now and its reputation as the epicentre for London's wealth. We've seen it already on the streets leading into the square. But it's worth noting that we're actually quite far from the centre of things. We're a long way from London Bridge. Originally, then, Mayfair is a manor. It's bequeathed to Westminster Abbey way back when it's seized by Henry VIII. Part of it gets merged with Hyde Park, just to our west, and the rest of it, the rest of Mayfair, is sold and resold and resold again. What that means is in the south of Mayfair, just off Piccadilly where we started, you've got a little patchwork which explains a lot of the development. You don't have any grand squares down there. You have these streets now with shopping on them. In Mayfair, the big estates, the three big estates, are to the north, and they include this one. The name for the new district, Mayfair, comes from a Mayfair that is transferred from Haymarket to a site a little to our south on Curzon Street. The fair is suppressed in the middle of the 18th century as development takes off. But development in Mayfair has to wait because it is quite far out. It has to wait for there to be building further east for those districts to lose their shine. We have to wait for the Bedfords in Bloomsbury to take the plunge. We have to wait for trade and empire to continue to keep London growing. We have to wait also for royal authority to shift from the Stuarts, who are slightly dodgy in their beliefs, to the pragmatic Dutch and the Germans. Mayfair, in part, is about politics. 
In the 1680s, opposing the Stuarts, the last of the Stuart kings, you've got the Whigs. They believe in constitutional monarchy, in parliamentary politics. What they mean is elite parliamentary politics. And they are opposed to the Tories and the people they serve, the Stuarts. Absolute monarchy, Catholic emancipation, all that kind of stuff. The Whigs begin to get into power in the late 17th century. They are dominant in the early 18th century when this square takes off. And this is a Whig square. The landowner is the Earl of Scarborough, and he's celebrating here a new dawn with the arrival of the Hanoverians from Germany, even though they don't speak English. No problem. The name of the square celebrates them. On the church we've just passed, there's meant to be a statue of George I on the top of it. There are other little Germanic touches in the streets around us. In other words, the estate is a statement. London is a town subject not to royal despots and their architectural toadies, but to the principles of propertied patricians. But it's also originally a very familiar mix. You've got the standard features of aristocratic capitalism, leasehold, vertical living, service streets around. The square is leased by veteran generals of campaigns. We've been fighting the French already for a while in the early 18th century. It becomes a centre of high fashion. The churches where the elite congregate. There are concert rooms where one of Bach's sons, where Haydn plays. He has a series of string quartets, the London quartets. That's where they started off. Most of the square now, though, obviously is 20th century. We're very near Oxford Circus, another epicentre of West End fashion on Nash's original route. In the southeast corner, we've got Vogue House, fashion magazines doing their thing. We've got a very ritzy gallery just behind us, the Pace Gallery. We've got a Mandarin Oriental Hotel. And we've also most recently got the Elizabeth Line running underneath us. You can get onto that from Hanover Square. But back in the early 18th century, sure enough, soon enough, Hanover Square encourages the other property owners of Mayfair, the other aristocrats, to build up their own estates. The first one it catalyzes into action are the Tories. Sharing an address with their political rivals was inconceivable, of course, and so they begin to develop their own estate on the other side of the main road, Oxford Street. It's a reminder that birds of a political feather have always grouped together. If you're a radical, you want to be in Soho. If you are a Tory, you need to be a member of the Carlton Club. New Labour under Tony Blair in the 90s was straight out of Islington. Cameron and his cronies had to be in the countryside in Chipping Norton. We can never quite leave politics behind, but we're going to leave the square. We're heading straight north, up Harewood Place, across Oxford Street, into Hollis Street, and we will find ourselves in our next square, Cavendish Square. So here we are, a stone's throw from Mayfair, which we've just left. We're in Marylebone, we're in Cavendish Square, we're surrounded by pigeons. Despite their rivalry, Whigs and Tories needed much the same kind of stage on which to parade their political correctness. But they're both building, of course, on land with a history of its own. Marylebone, Mary Laburn, is originally a 12th century parish. It serves two manors. The church is dedicated to St Mary. 
It's also on the bank of the Tyburn, a stream, so St. Mary Le Burn. Still, though, in the 17th century, this isn't a very promising area. It's on the wrong side of the main road leading out of London, then known as Tyburn, now as Oxford Street. It's a deep, hollow road full of sloughs, the lurking place of cutthroats. But come the early 18th, it belongs to an aristocrat. Demand is picking up, so he thinks. And so things get going. It's the product also of a marriage market, as well as political sympathies. First, the marriage. The Duke of Newcastle is the husband of Margaret Cavendish. He buys half of the manor of Marylebone in 1710, but he dies without a male heir, the poor chap. So his daughter, Henrietta Hollis, marries Edward Harley, the heir of the Earl of Oxford. Too many names, aristocratic marriages are a nightmare. But you'll find most of those names on the streets around us now. Edward and Henrietta also failed to produce a son, and so their daughter in 1734, Margaret, supposedly the richest young woman in the country, marries, quote, the handsomest man in England. That's William Bentick. He's the heir to the Duke of Portland. And so this becomes the Portland estate. Names change. The basic principles stay the same. Fifteen years earlier, the Harleys have begun to lay out the square. They're Tories, and it's for their friends and allies. And their intention is for very grand mansions designed by Gibbs. He's the chap who built St. Martin in the Fields, which we saw in the previous episode. But it doesn't really work, in part because the Dukes are losing money. Tories have never been that great on working the market, even if we believe they're good with the economy. And when the square is finally complete, they're still absolutely obsessed with pretending that they're in the countryside. They import sheep to graze behind the railings here. Here's a commentator in 1771 pointing out the absurdity. To see the poor things starting at every coach and hurrying around their narrow bounds required a warm imagination to convert the scene into that of flocks ranging fields with all the concomitant ideas of innocence and a pastoral life. Almost all squares are tinctured with the same absurdity. They are parks, they are sheep walks, in short, they are everything but what they should be. Rus in Urbe is a preposterous idea at best. By then, 60 years after they've started the development, things have begun to pick back up. Globally, the Seven Years' War between England and France has just ended. Trade and empire are getting going again. Locally, In London, developments further east, Covent Garden, Soho, we've seen them in previous episodes of this walk, they're becoming less desirable. Think about Hogarth's Gin Lane. This area is becoming more. It's closer to the countryside. You've also got a toll road to our north. It's now Marylebone Road. That opens in 1756. And so the streets around us are filled in. It's not the end of the story, of course. The estate changes hands yet again. Now it belongs to the Howard de Walden estate. And the building continues as Oxford Street takes off as a shopping destination. So now in the square, what we've got is the typical mix. To the north, we've got an archway leading into a courtyard. That used to be a theology college. It's now where the King's Fund is based, monitoring healthcare in the UK. On the south side, behind us on the right, we've got John Lewis, 1939, a big department store coming at the end of a sequence there. They're now trying to convert half of it into offices because, of course, shopping is different. On the left, this is from the 1960s, you've got the London College of Fashion on the roof. And in the right corner, 
on the west side you've got the Royal College of Nursing, a conversion of an 18th century house built in 1922. And of course the nurses are now going on strike for the first time in many years. So we have the first part of our story, the first chapter in the development of Mayfair and Marylebone, taking us to the early 18th century. Aristocrats are beginning to realise that their estates in the city don't need to be exact copies of their bastions in the countryside. Instead, they can serve to advertise their status, to advance their political agendas, to hang out with their friends and to generate income. Next, we'll see what happens to both neighbourhoods, Mayfair and Marylebone, over the next three centuries as the estates filled up, as more wealth flowed into London, and as the buildings and the streets were turned to new uses. But here's a good point to pause the podcast, take a break and reflect on what we've seen so far. Welcome back. So we've got a sense of the basics of Mayfair and Marylebone. Now we can explore how they've developed. We'll start by seeing how this estate, the Portland estate, also kickstarts the scheme to pamper the Prince Regent in the early 19th century. We're leaving Cavendish Square towards the northeast. We've got our backs to John Lewis and we're heading diagonally out of the square. When you get to the corner of the square, turn down Cavendish Place. We've reached the end of Cavendish Place now. We can hear the roar of the traffic and immediately we can see something very different straight ahead. Glancing right, we can see Oxford Circus down there, but we're turning left onto Langham Place. And immediately we can see that the street curves. We're at the north end of Nash's great scheme for the Prince Regent here. And this is one of those places where he has to accommodate what's already here. On the corner, he puts the church you can see in front of you. This is All Souls Langham Place. It has a circular portico, so it looks okay from all sides. Then, though, come the Victorians. In the 1840s, rail is coming to London. Rail is bringing huge hotels next to stations. You might know them at Paddington. But here we're in the middle of a residential district. No problem. The Langham Hotel, it's on our left. It's built in 1864. An architectural critic calls it a high Victorian monster. It has 600 rooms, it has 100 water closets or toilets, only 36 bathrooms, but 30 suites have their bathrooms en suite. It also has the first hydraulic lifts in London. It's now owned by a Hong Kong property company. And then next to All Souls, we've got the BBC. On the left, Broadcasting House. Opened in 1932, steel-framed Art Deco. Now it's a London landmark, but it's not always been loved. Here's Pevsner, the great architectural historian, quoting an early 19th century essayist. It seems to me that unmixed ugliness does not arise from any sudden variation, but rather from that want of form, that unshapen, lumpish appearance which perhaps no one word exactly expresses. Broadcasting House is an example of this. 
It did again what the Langham Hotel opposite had done 65 years before. It cast a blight on the whole delightful Georgian neighbourhood. A specially unfortunate feature is the windows of the Georgian shape. They make the grimness of the sheer stone walls twice as painful. But the original broadcasting house may not be the worst. In 2005, it's extended. The BBC is pulling back everything here into central London. TV comes here from White City. The World Service comes from Bush House. We saw that on an earlier walk. And so they build the extension you can see curving round. 80,000 square metres, the area equivalent to one and two-thirds gherkins in the city. Four times the original square footage, one billion plus. We're continuing around the corner in front of the Langham Hotel into Chandos Street. So we're curving round the front of the Langham Hotel now. We're leaving the BBC behind us. We're going under the Langham Hotel portico, gives you some sense of the grandeur here, and on to the end of the street. We're at the end of Portland Place now, glancing left on Chandos Street. We can see the Medical Society of London, founded in the late 18th century, moved into this building in the end of the 19th century, blocked in the windows. But we're turning right on Chandos Street. And immediately ahead of us, we can see a very elegant house. This is a survival from the late 18th century, Robert Adam. When we get to the house, turn left on Queen Anne Street. So we've reached that rather elegant house now. We're turning left on Queen Anne Street and we're going to continue down it some ways, crossing a few other streets. It's a real mix. We might pause at the corners just to note what we're seeing. So the first main road we're coming to here is Harley Street, laid out in the middle of the 18th century, much changed in the late 19th, early 20th, because this is where doctors are coming to town. There are about 20 on the street in 1860, 80 by 1900, 200 by 1914. Now there's about 3,000 medical professionals in this small area. Continue on across Harley Street, down Queen Anne Street. We're crossing Wimpole Street now, it's very similar. We're continuing down Queen Anne Street. At the end, turn left on Welbeck Street. We've turned left on Welbeck Street, again, very similar. Take the next right on Bentinck Street. We've come down Bentinck Street a little way and we find ourselves at Marylebone Lane. Immediately, it's obvious this is not straight. This is not part of the geometry of the late 18th century development of Mayfair. This is the original lane. It's a lane that leads north of the Lord Mayor's Banqueting House, which is just a little bit of the ways off Oxford Street in the countryside. If you went right up Marylebone Lane, you'd find some of the best fish and chips in London at the Golden Hind, run by a wonderful Italian family. But we're heading straight to the square you can see in front of you, Manchester Square. 
So here we are in Manchester Square. We've left the Harley Portland Howard de Walden estate. We're on a different one now because by the late 18th century, other aristocrats are, of course, getting in on the act. The one here is the Portman family. They start building Portman Square just to our west in 1764. Then this one comes along in 1776. It's an important date, of course. Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations. Gibbon wrote Decline and Fall. We got rid of the North American colonies. The mansion we can see on the north side of the square is more or less original. It's built for the Duke of Manchester, hence the name of the square. Aristocrats dripping their names on the streets of London. It's changed quite a bit, though, since it was bought by Richard Wallace for his collection. In 1872, it became a museum in 1900. They glazed over the courtyard in 2000. It's an impressive collection, if you like arms and armour and decorative arts. Also, EMI set up here in the northwest corner in the 50s and 60s, one of the few music businesses not over in Soho. And of course, the building goes on. At the end of the 18th century, Baker Street, Gloucester Place to the east, leading north from Portman Square. According to Pevsner, the great architectural historian, those two streets demonstrate how uniform and monotonous late Georgian streets can be. But in the late 19th century, fashion again has moved on further west to Bayswater, to Kensington. South Marylebone is sinking in status. And to see why, and to see the attempts to correct this, we'll walk back towards Mayfair. So we're leaving the square, we're turning our back on the Wallace Collection, and we're heading south through Duke Street. We're coming to the end of Duke Street now. Turn left on Wigmore Street. Go a short ways down, then turn right on St Christopher's Place. So we've crossed James Street. We've turned right at St Christopher's Place. It's much quieter here. What is this? It's hard to see now, given what we have around us. High-end shops, restaurants, and so on. Again, it's originally a small holding, not a big estate. It's between two great estates. Originally, it's just a court which leads to a dead end. In the early 19th century, it becomes part of the Irish colony, but there are problems. There's endless subletting here. In 1838, a dilapidated house in this court collapses. In 1857, there's an inquest into the death of a child in a house with 30 to 40 people and not sufficient air for a mushroom to grow. This is the place where Octavia Hill, a pioneer of social housing, starts to work in around 1864. This is how she describes Paradise Place, a very similar court just to the north in 1865. The plaster was dropping from the walls. On one staircase, a pail was placed to catch the rain that fell through the roof. All the staircases were perfectly dark. The banisters were gone, having been used as firewood. Instead, she thinks, improvement and social harmony even are possible if the landlord provides and the tenant maintains habitable housing. And so in 1872, 
Eleven houses on the west side of this court are bought for her. Those houses have 45 families in 49 rooms. She rebuilds them, she turns them into five-story model dwellings. We can see the sign for one of them here, Sarsden Buildings. Basically what you've got is individual tenements. You don't have to cram into the same space with other families. You have small two-room sets, is what they were called, and they're accessed from open balconies at the rear. In the basement, you have a club room. In the 1880s, here's how one visitor described that space. On the little round tables, I noticed all sorts of illustrated papers. There was excellent tea and coffee at a penny a cup, and a kind of concert was given by some good-natured amateurs. The people seemed to enjoy themselves a good deal, in a quiet sort of way. The women brought their babies, wretched-looking little mites, most of them. Miss Hill and some of her lady helpers moved about amongst the people, and seem to know them all by name. That heritage persists on this narrow street. In 1904, some women's dining rooms set up here for shop assistants and typists, safe space for 300. Good midday meals were unaffordable for most working women at the time, and charity restaurants would only encourage them to accept less than living wages. But that closes five years later in 1909. In the 20th century, of course, this is transformed. In 1930s, it's a centre for antiques. In the 1960s, it's renovated by a developer and it becomes the shopping destination you can see. The tenements are refitted as luxury apartments, as offices. It becomes a centre for fashion. Vivian Westwood is here for a bit. We're continuing down St Christopher's Place through a very narrow end and back onto Oxford Street. There, we'll turn right. We've just popped out on Oxford Street now. We've come out of this tiny funnel packed with shoppers. More here on Oxford Street, shopping in full flow. We're walking down a little ways. We're heading to Selfridges. It's hard to stay on Oxford Street long. It's an old main road. It became a dividing line between the estates we've been talking about now. Of course, it's a shopping mecca, and the crowds are out in force. It's worth just noticing Selfridges, though. It's coming at the end of a sequence, which is kicked off by the opening of Regent Street. That's when retail really starts here. Until that point, Oxford Street isn't much of anything. And Selfridges is maybe the greatest of the department stores. It started up by Gordon Selfridge. It's built between 1908 and 1928. He's already made a mint in Chicago. That's where the modern department store really gets its start. His goal is to make shopping into a leisure opportunity rather than a chore. He has, you can see them on the front of the store, huge columns framing large shop windows with amazing Christmas displays this year. All of that, of course, is thanks to a steel frame, which means you can have big pieces of glass like this. The interior has uninterrupted floor space so you can browse. Up until that point, you actually always had to have an interaction with the shop assistant before you got anything. He does more things. In 1920s, the first TV demo in the UK happens here. He has on the roof a mini golf course, as well as an all-woman gun club. Architectural innovation continues to be a Selfridge trademark today. If you know the store in Birmingham, you'll know that it has about 14,000 spinning discs. 
The whole group, though, was sold last year, 2021, for four billion sterling to a conglomerate from Thailand. We're turning left just before Selfridges, down Duke Street. We're walking down Duke Street. We're pausing here on the corner of Brown Heart Gardens. On our left, we've got an extraordinary chapel, late 19th century. It's now the Ukrainian Cathedral in London. It's been that since 1965. On our right, we can see some red brick mansion blocks. There are some others behind the cathedral here. These are built in the 1880s, 1890s by the Improved Industrial Dwellings Company. Octavia Hill has done her work just north of here. There's a moral incentive and also a financial one. For estates to have slums on their doorsteps is bad for lease renewals. And so Grosvenor, we're now in the Grosvenor estate, Grosvenor is offering reduced ground rents to charitable companies who will replace the slums on their perimeters. We've also got in front of us a kind of raised, strange garden. This is Brown Heart Gardens. It's hiding an electricity substation. We've seen this before in Soho Square. Continue down Duke Street to Grosvenor Square. So here we are in Grosvenor Square. It's the second of the three great squares of Mayfair. Again, the backstory here is the marriage market. It was a manor. It belonged to Westminster Abbey. It's huge. It stretches all the way down to the Thames. It's interrupted by a little farm back in the day. Fast forward to the middle of the 17th century. A rich lawyer buys this from the Earl of Middlesex. The lawyer promptly dies, leaving a young daughter, Mary Davies, as his heir. Her mum tries to sell her, age seven, to Lord Berkeley. He's got another estate just to our south. As a future wife for his son, age ten. But Berkeley fails to pay up. So her mum parades her in Hyde Park for another five years. Finally, in 1677, she gets a bid from Sir Thomas Grosvenor, a rich Cheshire landowner. He dies. Mary spends much of the rest of her life in asylum. She goes mad. But their sons start building and the family has never looked back. Their descendants were made into barons in 1761, earls in 1784 and marquesses in 1831 and most recently the most recent non-royal duke in 1874. The current Duke of Westminster is the seventh and he's just over 30 years old aristocratic inflation, they've reached the top of the tree. Soon enough, it's very fashionable. The king's mistress is in residence. The square, the streets around it are inhabited by people of distinction, a third of them with titles. Most interesting, more than half the ratepayers on the square are single women, widows or heirs, who use the space they own here to cement their social status, but also to exercise political influence. Public spaces are still dangerous for women, but they can use the grand spaces inside their houses for public assembly and political plotting. Most striking at the west end of the square is what used to be the American embassy. 
designed by Eero Saarinen at the end of the 1950s. It received a very mixed reception, and now it's passed on to other owners. It's becoming a luxury hotel. The Americans are down in Vauxhall. They think it's safer there. Still, the freehold of the square is owned by the Grosvenor. According to their website, it's part of an internationally diversified portfolio devoted to, quote, delivering lasting benefit. But much of Mayfair is owned by London's biggest property owner, the state and individuals from Qatar. They own 22 million square feet of London as a whole. Compare that to the City of London, the Corporation of London, also Transport for London, 15 million. The Queen, the government, Aviva, an insurance company, just under 8 million. In 2016, Qatari investors owned almost a quarter of Mayfair. They own almost 4,300 residential properties. They also own most of the top hotels, the Ritz on Piccadilly, where we were, Claridge's, one block east of us now, the Connaught, one block south, and the Intercontinental at the bottom of Park Lane. They also own Harrods, and of course, they built the Shard by London Bridge. We're going to walk on a bit to see how some other bits of the Grosvenor Estate accommodate these demands of wealth. We could walk further south. We could walk to Berkeley Square, the square started by the Lord who wouldn't pay for Mary Davies. That was built up just a bit later from the 1730s. It was owned by BP, the oil company in the 1960s. Now Berkeley Square is the property of a consortium led by the House of Saud. They outbid the Grosvenors when it was up for sale. And it's now the most expensive commercial floor space in the world. It's got hedge funds, it's got art dealers, high-end restaurants, exclusive clubs, but we've already seen a lot of that. Instead, we're going to end the episode and the walk by finding some respite from all of this on the other side of Park Lane in Hyde Park. So we're leaving the square from the southeast corner. Head for Carlos Place. So we're heading down Carlos Place now. We can hear the traffic roaring past. We're heading past the Connaught Hotel, built at the end of the 19th century. Only 96 bedrooms, quite small for the time, still very exclusive. We're now heading over Mount Street. That name actually comes from defences that were built during the Civil War, a mount. The street is laid out in the 18th century. It's rebuilt at the end of the 19th. It has flats over shops. They include James Purdy, guns, there from 1814, and Louboutin, guns for the boys, shoes for the girls, maybe. But we're heading over Mount Street now and into the garden we can see ahead of us, Mount Street Gardens. So here we are in Mount Street Gardens, a little quiet refuge from luxury retail and expensive cars. Originally, this is a burial grounds for St. George's Hanover Square, which we met earlier on in this walk. It's a long way away, as you can see. Already in 1723, the land around the church has too many other demands on it, so this is where they bury their parishioners. And in Mount Street Gardens, 
again, a quiet refuge. We have two quite contrasting religious institutions. As we curve into the gardens, straight ahead of us, we've got Immaculate Conception. This is the English headquarters of the Jesuits. You may know they were founded in the 16th century. They were the shock troops of the Lord, according to some spreading the faith in Asia, Africa, South America. But they only get to England in the middle of the 19th century. That's when anti-Catholic laws dating back 200 years are lifted and also Irish immigrants are coming to town. And at the other end of the gardens, we're heading towards it now, we've got the Grosvenor Chapel. This is part of the estate plan. It's built in 1730s and then in 1831 it becomes a chapel of ease. It's an interesting term. It means that this part of the estate is quite far from the parish church, St. George's Hanover Square. And so for the convenience of the residents and the care of their souls, these chapels are designated as places where they can pray. We're heading out of the gardens now, leaving the chapel on our left. When we get to the road, turn left, then right on Aldford Street. We're heading down Aldford Street now. Ahead of us, we can already see Hyde Park. We're going to get there by going under the pedestrian subway we'll find at the end of this street. So we've come out from that pedestrian subway now and we're in Hyde Park. There's a Christmas funfair going not too far away. It's a different variation of a theme we know well by now. It's another ancient manor. It also belonged to the Abbey. It was enclosed as a deer park for Henry VIII. He couldn't get enough hunting. It's open to the public for the first time in 1630. It becomes a place for parade to the south along Rotten Row. That's where Mary Davies was paraded by her mum. Park Lane, another ancient lane. It's built up in the early 18th century when Mayfair is filling up. It's at its fashionable peak in the early 19th century. You're in Mayfair, but you're looking out over a park. There are big mansions, there are terraces. It's rather like a seafront promenade, according to some. And a few of these remain just a few hundred yards north. We've got Dudley House, a mansion which even royalty is jealous of now, of course, owned by Qatar. But then this street, Park Lane, is made over in two phases. First, at the end of the 19th century, the aristocratic estates are hit hard. There's an agricultural depression, their land in the countryside is losing value. There's also rising income tax, there are death duties, there are land sales. There are estate sales here in London. A quarter of England changes hands in the four years after the First World War. It's as transformative as the dissolution of the monasteries, which we keep on hearing about. But here on Park Lane, there are very few buyers for these mansions, and so there are a lot of demolitions. Five of them go on the street. They're replaced by offices, by flats, and by hotels. Then, 
after the Second World War, 1958 to 1963, the car must have its way. The London County Council widens the road, it becomes a dual carriageway along which you can hear the traffic rushing. But to end the walk, to end our series of reflections on London, we're going to turn right now, we're going to make our way to the northeast corner of the park and stop at Speaker's Corner. So here we are at Speaker's Corner, the final stop of our walks through London. It's a noisy place, it's a noisy time to be here, but at least today there are no protests. More on that in a minute. It's a good spot to reflect back on our journey all the way through London. Where we are is originally just a point on a stream, a burn, heading down from Hampstead through Marylebone to the river forming the island on which Westminster is going to be built. Then we're at the intersection of two Roman roads. Portway leads out to Silchester, Watling goes up to St Albans. Then a medieval manor, which becomes a place of execution, Tyburn. Then, as the city grew west, a different kind of junction between the new fashionable suburbs, which we've explored in these three episodes on the West End, and a royal park. Just to our north, we've got Marble Arch. That was designed by Nash as well. It's originally intended for Buckingham House, then Palace. That comes here in 1851 to form a grand entrance to the Great Exhibition. It's islanded, though, in the early 20th century when the demands of traffic supersede those of ceremonial. It's been even more forlorn since the 1960s when the road was widened again. Also, though, we're at Speaker's Corner. This is a place where people have spoken out. That originates in the middle of the 19th century. People were trying to extend the franchise to get suffrage. The marches ended here in Hyde Park. In 1866, though, one of the marches was locked out and there's a riot. In 1872, finally, an act of parliament enshrines the right to meet and to speak freely. In 1908, 250,000 women march and assemble here to ask that they too should be given the vote. More recently, in 2003, maybe two million assembled against the Iraq war. In all three of our walks through London, from the city to Westminster, in the East End, and now, perhaps more than anywhere else here in the West, it's been hard to avoid the impression that London's landscape and London's people have been subject, above all, to the demands of wealth. But here at Speaker's Corner, maybe we can tell other stories too, about how it's been possible sometimes to hold the powerful and the wealthy to account, to create spaces where it's possible to do more than simply reproduce the same, to tell stories about how cities belong, above all, to the people who live in them. Before the freedom to assemble is enshrined in law, in June 1855, Robert Grosvenor, the third son of the then Marquis, tries to introduce a bill. He wants to close shops and beer houses and shut down transport on Sundays so that everyone can observe the Sabbath. 
In response, a call goes out for the lower orders on the bills that are printed to come to Hyde Park so that they can see, quote, how religiously the aristocracy observe the Sabbath. On the 24th of June, crowds assemble to hoot and hiss the carriages of the rich. One week later, on the 1st of July, maybe 150,000 assemble. Sticks, stones, earth and horse dung are thrown. There are running skirmishes with the police. Next Sunday, there's window breaking in the West End, there's looting in the streets. And Karl Marx was there to observe it all. After the first Sunday, he wrote that, quote, Yesterday, in Hyde Park, the English Revolution began. After the second Sunday, he describes the scene. Instead of elegant coaches and four, dirty cabs which drove back and forth between the police station at Vine Street and the improvised jails in Hyde Park, instead of lackeys on the boxes of carriages, constables sitting next to drunken cab drivers. Inside the vehicles, instead of elegant gentlemen and ladies, prisoners with bloody heads, dishevelled hair, half-undressed and with torn clothes, guarded by dubious conscripts from the Irish lumpen proletariat, who'd been pressed into the London police. Instead of the wafting of fans, a hail of truncheons. Last Sunday, the ruling classes had shown their fashionable face. This time, the face they displayed was that of the state. In the background, behind the affably grinning old gentlemen, the fashionable dandies, the elegantly infirm widows and the perfumed beauties in their cashmeres, ostrich feathers and garlands of flowers and diamonds, stood the constable, with his waterproof coat, greasy oilskin hat and truncheon, the reversed side of the coin. Last Sunday, the ruling classes had confronted the masses as individuals. This time, they assumed the form of state power, law and truncheon. This time, resistance amounted to insurrection, and the Englishman must be subjected to long, slow provocation before he is moved to insurrection. Marx was wrong, of course, at least about the revolution. His work has failed repeatedly as prophecy, but perhaps it can serve to remind us that even in London, even where property has long been king, there has sometimes been space to imagine different forms of common wealth, to hold out hope that another world, another kind of city, might be possible. Historicity is written and presented by Angus Lockyer and produced by Jelena Sofronievich. See the episode notes for the other walks and follow Historicity wherever you get your podcasts.